following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. One commentator said in his blog, it looks as though America is standing like Pompeii. The volcano is about to go off, but everyone is rationalizing it and saying, it's impossible for our economy to collapse. It's impossible for America to not be strong. Nothing can touch us. We're safe. We can continue business as usual. As I listened to him say these things, I said, yes, it's the same in the church. We have compounded lie upon lie until everyone is confident that they are safe and everyone is confident in their sin that they can continue. I spoke with a man this morning. He said to me, I do my best to be a good Christian, but I am a sinner. I sin all the time. I guess that's why I go to church, so I can repent. I said, but what about the blood of Jesus? Well, he said, Pastor, we're all sinners. This was a man I met this morning as I went to a voting booth. We're all sinners. This is the lie that is compounded on lie after lie, theological position that is false after theological position that is false. And so we are comforted in our lies and believe that we can continue being good Christians while all the time walking in our rebellion against Jesus. Remember, yesterday, in way of review, I said, if you don't start with a basis of truth, then you cannot ever have a reform in the church. You can't base your solutions on a lie, because then the solution is worse than the problem was. You have to detach yourself from the lies and find the truth. We have to, in the church, go back to the basic bedrock of the scriptures and again ask the question without interpreting it from tradition and from man's viewpoint, what do the scriptures actually teach us? What do they teach us about Jesus and what do they teach us about truth? You see, in the modern church, we have, we have said we must be relevant to the culture in which we live, and so we need to build mega churches without crosses. We need to build mega churches that, that meet all the needs of the people. We need to have the wonderful children's programs. Nothing wrong with children's programs, 
We need to have the wonderful concerts and music. Nothing wrong with good Christian music. We have to have people come dressed as they are in their cutoffs and their shorts and their nothing wrong with cutoffs and shorts and jeans. They're not necessarily unholy. But when all of these entertainment things and all of this casualness begins to come together and form a seeker-sensitive church, and nothing wrong with trying to find people who are hungry for Jesus. It's when we bring all of these things together in a lie that says we must do something to draw people to the church, disregarding the word of Jesus. Let me read it for you. I'll turn quickly to it. This is what it says in John, in the 12th chapter, verse 30. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The problem is, when we draw men to the church, but we do not draw them to Jesus. And we don't speak to them about the blood. We don't speak in a way that they are convicted of their sins and turn from unrighteousness and are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That's the problem. There's no problem with music if it's of a moral nature. There's nothing wrong with a music concert if it's of a moral nature. But these things don't draw men to Jesus. Only Jesus can draw men to Jesus. It's when Jesus is lifted up that men then can turn from their sin and repent. Else you have simply a social organization that does good things for kids and does good things for adults and does good things for everybody. And this is a wonderful place of inspiration and friendship and we're the friendliest church in town. Let's go. We're wonderful. Hogwash. Can I put it that way? I'm an old farmer. Hogwash. It's when Jesus is lifted up. It's when the cross of Jesus Christ is lifted up and men are invited and women are invited and boys and girls are invited to be crucified with Jesus Christ to die to the old nature and the old way of life and they're transformed into the likeness of Jesus and they're not called sinning Christians, they're called saints. <laughs> Do you know what the word saint means in the Greek? It means the awful one. Isn't that amazing? The awful one. Well, in what sense is a saint an awful one? A saint is an awful one in the sense not of being horrid, but in the sense of being made holy, made righteous. And so there is a grandeur. There, the the use of the of the word originally for awful is is frightening. When you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you say, that's an awful vista. It's awe-inspiring. It's life-transforming. 
when you see how little you are and how huge this Grand Canyon is. It's awful. That's what a saint is supposed to be. Not a sinner, but full of the grandeur of God. So any gospel that does not deliver from sin is a lie. Any gospel that does not deliver from sin is a lie. Any revival that does not deliver people is a false revival. The acid test, the acid test of the Christian gospel is will it deliver me from my sin? Will it make me righteous? Will it make me holy? Will it make me into a loving, kind person? Will it transform me into the likeness of Jesus? If it, if it doesn't, it's a false religion. There's a passage of Scripture in Isaiah, the 28th chapter. I'm going to begin reading with verse 15b. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge, a falsehood our hiding place. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line, righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge of lies, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. The covenant with death is it will not come near me. I'm safe. I'm secure. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, day by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. The Lord will rise up as he did on Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as he did in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop mocking or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has told me of the destruction decreed upon the whole land. He's speaking this to the children of Israel, but the same truth is here for us today. There are refuges of lies that we have jumped into. Now, I'd like to share some of what Charles Finney had to say about this refuge of lies. He says, all men know that they are sinners against God. They all know that as sinners, they are not safe, but in peril. That is, all men know that they are not safe and are in peril unless they have formed a covenant with death and said these lies that we can continue in our sin 
will sustain us on the journey and we will be saved and brought into heaven in the end because we love Jesus. But in our heart of hearts, all men know they are sinners. And because we all know we're sinners, we're eager to find a refuge. A refuge of lies. They know that they might find this an obstacle to forsaking their sin and turning to the Lord, this this sin that they cherish in their heart. But they don't want to leave their sin behind. So they have to find a refuge where they can keep their sin and believe a lie. The text I just shared with you speaks of this refuge of lies It's obvious that men who resort to lies for a refuge regard those lies not as lies, but as the truth. And so we become convinced of the truth of our lie. We become convinced that a man can be a sinning Christian. And I have men and women who defend this with great fervor, saying, I'm a sinner, but I'm a saved sinner. And the only difference between me and the world is that I'm forgiven and they're not because I received Jesus into my life. This person is trusting in a refuge of lies. And so this this fact that we believe our lie is a truth, this fact leads us to raise a fundamental question. Do we have any rule or any standard that will show what is truth and what is falsehood? Today the church is filled with the attitudes and the beliefs and the opinions of men. Our culture is filled with all of the clamor of what men think and believe. Is there an absolute by which we can determine what is true, and what is false. Is there some way we can skirt the countless opinions? How can we determine what is true and what is false? Well, let me give you an infallible test. So let's examine this test. Salvation to be real and available must be salvation from sin. Jesus said that he came to save his people from their sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to deliver us from bondage. He came to set us free. So, has Jesus set us free? Has he set you free? 
If you call yourself a Christian, but you have not been set free, then you are hiding in a refuge of lies. This morning I was in the prayer closet crying out to the Lord because I feel a great lack of prayerfulness in my life. I spend time every day on my face before God, but I still sense a lack in my prayer life. I have a sense of a great lack of prayer in the National Prayer Chapel. It seems that in the last year or so, there's been a a loss of prayerfulness on the part of the people. And I was praying about this. And knowing what I was going to present to you today, and out of the desperate cry of my heart, I began to pray, Lord, show me the refuge of lies that I'm holding on to that allows me to not engage as fully as my heart wants to engage you in the prayer closet. And I began to look at some of those tiredness, stress, the pain of losing my precious wife, the struggle of living alone, Well, all of those things should drive me even more deeply into the prayer closet. But sometimes they cause me to just say, I don't know how to proceed. I don't know what to do. Well, the answer is very simple. Pray. Tell Jesus exactly what I feel, exactly what I think. Tell Jesus what exactly is in my heart. And so I began to do that this morning. And there was a great breakthrough in my heart as I entered into a deeper spirit of prayer with Jesus. Because what I want to do is pray the heart of Jesus. I don't want any refuge of lies to block me from the prayer closet because I know that prayer is the breath of the soul. And if I'm having a hard time breathing, then I'm close to dying. saying, O Lord, bring me deeper into your prayer closet. Teach me, Lord. Break out every lie of my heart that would prevent me. The lie of tiredness. He said, Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My rest is found in Jesus. Can I just say this? Every cry of my heart finds its answer in Jesus Christ. Anything else is a refuge of lies. So salvation to be real and available must be salvation from sin. Everything else fails. Any system of religion that does not break the power of sin is a lie. If it does not expel selfishness and lust for the things of the world, 
if it does not generate love for God and man, if it doesn't generate joy in your heart, if it doesn't bring peace to your soul, if it doesn't bring to you all the fruit of the Spirit, it's false and it's worthless. Any system that fails in this vital respect is a lie and can be of no use. It is no better than a curse. That which does not generate in us the spirit of heaven and make us like God, no matter where it originates or by what reasoning it is defended, it is a lie. If you flee to it as a refuge, then you're hiding in a refuge of lies. Again, if it does not generate a spirit of prayer, if it doesn't unify us with God, if it does not bring us into fellowship and sympathy with Jesus, it is a lie. I urge you to test your church. Test every part of your religious life. Is it accomplishing these things in your heart? Has it broken the power of sin? If it has not, then there's a lie somewhere in this. If it does not produce in you a heavenly mind, if it does not expel the love of the world, if it does not wean you from the love of the world, it is a lie. If it does not generate in us the love required in the scriptures, the love of God and of his worship and of his people, indeed of everyone, and if it does not produce all the states of mind that equip a soul for heaven, then it utterly fails in its purpose and it is a lie. Now, there are some objections. Some people will say the gospel does not, in fact, do for men all that you claim. It does not make professing Christians heavenly-minded, dead to the world, full of love, joy, and peace. Well, suppose you have a medicine that, when applied to a certain disease, will certainly cure it. The medicine has healing power, but it must be applied. A man may buy the medicine and find it bitter, and store it away in his cupboard and never take it out. He may also provide himself with a counterfeit to take in its place, or he may follow it with something that will instantly counteract its influence in the system. In any case, the effectiveness of the medicine is not disproven. It only proves that he has not used it faithfully and honestly. So it is with the gospel. You must take it and use it according to the directions. Otherwise, its failure is not its fault, but your fault. It is to no advantage then to say that the gospel does not save men from all their sin right now. It is of no advantage to say that it's impossible to stop sinning. You may indeed have a counterfeit religion. But if you honestly take the gospel medicine, if you take the blood of Jesus Christ, you will be transformed 
from sin to holiness, from sinner to saint. The gospel, if taken appropriately, makes a person peaceful and holy and heavenly in life and in death. Millions of such cases can be seen in the record of world's history. Their lives demonstrate the reality and the preciousness of the salvation that the gospel actually promises. So let's take a few minutes now and let's question some of these refuge of lies that are very popular in our day. Apostle John said in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, we know that when he, that is Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. A good hope purifies the heart. But certainly there are hopes that fail to purify the heart. You can hold certain hopes, but they will have no impact. You can hope you can go to heaven. You can believe that you're on your way to heaven. And that hope will not save you. Many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do? And he will say to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. A false hope. These hopes are lies. They cannot possibly be sound and true. On their face it stands revealed that they are worthless, a mere refuge of lies. The stronger and more unwavering these hopes are, the more deluding they are. But there is hope in Christ that does not bring the heart to Christ. Did you hear what I said? There is a hope in Jesus that does not bring our heart to Jesus. It is a false hope. It is a hope that refuses the blood of Jesus to break the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is a hopeless hope. We can have an old experience that is a lie. when we hope in our old experience and we say, oh, I, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and now I'm saved and it doesn't matter that I sin because I'm a part of Jesus' family and he'll never disown me. The scriptures say I can never be taken out of the hand of Jesus. No, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture does not say that you cannot take yourself out of the hand of Jesus. It says the devil can't take you out of the hand of Jesus. If you're putting your hope in the fact that you went down and received Jesus Christ, you are putting your hope in a false hope. It is not whether you have received Jesus, it's whether Jesus will receive you. Another false hope is self-righteousness. Both legal and gospel, both of which are refuges of lies. 
the legal form of self-righteousness depends on the doing of duty, as always, trying to work out your salvation by deeds of righteousness, by the deeds of the law. The gospel, the gospel sets itself to get grace by works when it's a false gospel. Men try to get a new heart, not by trying to turn from all sin, but by praying for it. A man once told me, I tried to become religious. When I asked him what he had done in his attempt to become religious, he said, I prayed for a new heart. The trouble was that he did not do what God said he must do, and that is to make himself a new heart and a new spirit. I know of men today, men who are listening to this broadcast, who weep before the Lord and plead with Jesus to give them a new heart. And then they go back to their sin. And they say, but I know that Jesus loves me and he knows that I've done my best and I know I'm saved. They're hiding in a refuge of lies. They're not saved. They're lost. Any gospel that does not deliver you from sin is a false gospel. If a man is unwilling to do what God says he must do, and that is make himself a new heart and a new spirit, Ezekiel 18.31, he did not truly repent. He did not truly bow his heart to God. Therefore, all of his efforts came short of what God requires. They failed to save his soul from sin. There's a great deal of this gospel self-righteousness, this throwing off the responsibility upon God and saying, God sees who I am and he's just going to have to accept me as I am. Well, God's not going to accept you as you are. He wants to transform you to be like Jesus. And if you resist that and you refuse to do what is necessary, you will be lost. Now there's another lie, and it used to be called universalism. Universalism, basically. Well, let me let me share with you what what Charles Finney said. Going along the road in my carriage, <clears throat> pardon me. I was passing by a young man and asked him if he would like a ride. He accepted the offer. Almost immediately he told me he was a universalist and came out strongly in, de in defense of his system. I said to him, I'm not well and may not live long. I do not dare to be deceived in this matter. He said that he was sure enough of its truth. He'd heard many intelligent men say and prove it from the scriptures. And I said to him, I have one objection. If universalism, meaning everyone is saved in the end, is true, there are several facts that I cannot account for. One set of facts is that I have known some families, once reputed to be upright and moral and well-respected, to become loose in morals, forsake the house of God, turn to strong drink, become fearfully cruel. The families undergoing this change almost always were universalists. On the other hand, 
I've never known a holy, prayerful universalist to backslide into gospel truth, forsaking his universalism and his morality, and degenerate into vice and true faith at the same time. I've known men who were reformed from drunkenness and vice, and then became true believers of the gospel, but I've never known men to reform from vice into universalism. In short, it seems to me that thousands of facts reveal a nature or a natural sympathy between vice, sin, and universalism, on the other hand, and between virtue and the gospel. Do you see that? Well, he was beginning to be troubled and said, I'm afraid I'm all wrong. Would you believe it? I'm running away from being converted. There's a revival in town, and I'm running away from being converted. You are, I said, and do you think it will hurt you? Will it do you any harm? He said, I don't, I don't believe in universalism, that it can save everyone. Everybody knows it never did save anyone and never can. Well, the same has to be said of Unitarianism. Wherever you find people who deny depravity, regeneration, and atonement, you will certainly find that their system does not make them heavenly-minded, holy, or humble. You do not need to reason with them to find this out. You only need to take the facts of their history. Universalism never saved any man from sin. Look at the facts. They alone are sufficient to show its utter falsehood. By the way, the same is true of Mormonism, of Jehovah Witnesses, and all other similar delusions. We don't need to write books against this and similar lies. It's obvious that this system saves men from, from no sin. They don't, they're not saved. They don't leave their sin. It's therefore a refuge of lies, deceiving men into hopes that can never be realized. And so we say of every creed and system that does not save men from sin and prepare them for heaven is a lie. Now, there are other refuges of lies. I want again to have you notice what God says. He declares the hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the, the hiding place. This hail is a symbol of God's displeasure. It's fitting that God should be displeased, displeased with refuges of lies. He loves the truth too well to have the least sympathy with lies. He loves the souls of men too deeply to have any patience with things so destructive. Therefore, he loathes all these refuges of lies, and he solemnly declared that the hail will sweep them all away. Probably the greatest refuge of lies today in America is the Reformed doctrine of the Reformation of John Calvin. It is a refuge of lies because it comforts people in their sin. It teaches the sinning Christian, and it gives people the false impression that they are saved in their sins and not from their sins. It is a refuge of lies. And if you're in a church that teaches this, flee, run. 
because the judgment of God is going to fall on that church. He says, the waters will overflow the hiding place. Every resource that leaves the soul in sin is a hiding place. All religious artificiality is only a hiding place. One is not better than the other. To put on a more devoted appearance, to put on an appearance of being a Christian, as if God could be made to believe a sinner can remain a sinner, is a flimsy hiding place. The same is true of all religious formality. Going through the motions of religion or of worship, being in the church, being baptized, walking through the church calendar, going to communion, going to confession. If all of this allows a person to continue walking in sin without any real soul holiness where all sin is rejected is a lie. Many people hide in the church. Judas Iscariot crept in there to hide. The church is a favorite place for religious people to hide because they have great social benefit and personal benefit from the church. But if that church allows them to believe that they are saved in the midst of their sin, that church is a refuge of lies. Many hide in orthodox creeds. They're not universalists. They're not Unitarians. They're not Mormons. They're not Jehovah Witnesses. They're orthodox. They think that religious opinions held strongly and they can prove them in the scriptures, will ensure their safety. They may even have a sentimental attachment to Jesus, and they may profess Jesus, but they've been lied to. Many people hide under the plea of a sinful nature. They say they're naturally unable to do anything. They have found a sure retreat. They're very willing to do their duty before God, but this sinful nature is all against them. Thus, what can they do? This is a refuge of lies. Some people dodge under believers' shortcoming. I fear there are many people like this in the church this hiding place will fail you in the day of trial when the hail comes and the storm arises. When the awful thunder breaks with an appalling crash, you will try in vain to find that man whose faults seem to excuse your own, to hide under his wing. Where is he now? If he's as bad as you claim, how much, how much help can he be to you in an all-devouring storm? If he's not as good as he should be, you ought to be better than he and not try to hide yourself under his shortcomings. People hide under the shortcomings of Christians all the time. They say, look, I'm just like everybody else. I'm doing my best, Pastor. 
That's humanism in the church. Trying hard, legalism. Now look, sinners know, you know these things to be refuges of lies because these things do not save you from your sins. Certainly, you've been listening to this broadcast long enough to know that what I'm saying is the truth. If you resort to a refuge of lies, you then have an excuse for delay. What a miserable deception. You're not honest, and therefore you should not think it strange. If you sense in your heart a coldness and a distance from Jesus, there's no one like Jesus. And he's calling for entire consecration in our hearts. To seek a refuge of lies is to tempt God to destroy you. How can it be otherwise? Remember the test, a plain and simple principle. Only that which saves from sin is true. All else is false. You have some hope for a happy future. What is this hope? Is it good or is it bad? Is it truthful and sure? Is it a refuge of lies? Does your hope sanctify you? Does it make you holy? Does it cause you to walk without sin? Does your hope cause you to be humble, holy, prayerful? Does your hope cause you to purify your heart? Are the fruit of the Spirit abundant in your life? Do you walk in daily communion with God? Are you so united with Him that you can say, Truly, I have fellowship with the Father. Do you have the life of God in your soul? Does it pervade your heart and diffuse itself all over the chambers of your soul? Let nothing less than this satisfy your mind. Now, the Catholics like to talk about the Virgin Mary and the sacraments and the absolution. What are all these things and a thousand more things like them good for if they do not save you from your sin? What is the use of running after these things that do not save you? But you say, I love to believe that everyone will be saved. It makes me happy in my heart. But does it make you holy? Does it renew your mind? This is the only sure test. You say, Pastor, I don't believe as you do. Well, here are the facts. You're in sin. Are you saved from your sin by your system? If so, then it's well. If not, then you're not doing well. Does believing a lie make it the truth? 
if you were to believe that you could walk on water or that water could not drown you and you leap overboard, would your belief save you? Dying sinner, all these refuges of lies will surely deceive and destroy you. It is time for you to arise and say, I must have Jesus. I cannot go where Jesus is. I cannot go where Jesus is with a lie in my right hand. We cannot be with Jesus and hide in a lie. None of you. I've been hoping and praying. I was praying this morning for you who listen. I've been hoping and praying that you would come to an absolute forlorn position in your heart, that you would be so disturbed and upset in your heart and your mind that you would finally begin to come to the realization that your heart has deceived you. And these refuges of lies cannot deliver you. I've been praying that the Lord God of heaven would begin to move with power in your heart. That he would break through the religious beliefs that are false. Things we have believed perhaps from childhood. I was taught as a child that I would be saved by hard works by the law, by keeping the law. And then I finally left the legalism and I went to the Dutch Reformed Church and said, okay, here I can find salvation. I can believe in Jesus, that he will save me, and I don't have to worry anymore about sin. The Holy Spirit kept chasing after me, and he chased me right out of that reform movement. And he caused me to fall on my face before him because he was absent from my life and my heart. And I was so overwhelmed by the wickedness of my soul, even as a pastor. I said, oh God, I have to have your righteousness. There has to be a change. Would you begin to reveal that to me? And all he'd say to me was, read my word. Read my word. And I began reading the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation two, three, four, five times a year, searching the scriptures, trying to understand, pleading with Jesus, show me I have no peace in my soul. I know I'm a sinner. I can find no comfort in the law. I can find no comfort in this reformed lie. What am I going to do, Jesus, about the sin of my heart? I have to deal with the sin of my heart, Jesus. I could not be comforted. I had seminary buddies who said to me, Ray, it's hard to be friends with you because you're always searching. You're a quester. I said, oh, I have to search because I haven't found Jesus yet. I remember one professor in seminary. I didn't take his class. So I would go and stand at the door. I didn't know about this man. I was a senior. I was graduating my last semester in college taking theology. I'd never had this man, but he was an old man. An old man by the name of Minchin. I would go and stand outside of his door listening with tears coming down my cheeks. 
as he spoke about Jesus in such intimate terms. I knew that he knew Jesus in a way I'd never imagined knowing Jesus. And then I graduated and went on to seminary. And always in my mind, in my heart, there hung this certainty. There's something I'm missing. And then in the first large church that I pastored, after my first sermon, I went back to the back door to shake hands with people as they came out. And this elderly, bald-headed man came out and he took both of my hands in his hand. With tears flowing down his face, he said, Pastor, Pastor, would you preach to us about Jesus? I said, oh, yes, brother, I will. But I went home and I wept because I knew I really didn't know Jesus. I knew I didn't know Jesus and I couldn't preach about Jesus. And so that lit a fire under me to search after Jesus. I wanted Jesus. And so I began to preach about holiness and about Jesus and about leaving our sin. And my denominational president was so upset with me for holding all-night prayer meetings, for causing such a stir in my church. It was a large congregation. It was upsetting people. That I was fired. continued to search for Jesus. Finally, the Holy Spirit pulled me out of the church ministry and he isolated me for seven years with no public ministry and gave me seven years in the wilderness to begin to get a hold of the revelation of who Jesus was. A most painful time. Learning how to pray learning how to cry out to Jesus, being disciplined by Jesus. And then we began the National Prayer Chapel, and still I was crying out. I knew I was missing something. And then came that incredible, wonderful revelation to my heart that righteousness was a free gift that Jesus would give to us, that holiness is a gift that he gives to us that it's not by law and it's not by works and it's not by being imputed. That word is not in Scripture. It's not by declaring us righteous. It's by being made righteous. And oh, my brother, my sister, today I come to talk about Jesus and to tell you that any system of religion that does not reveal the righteousness of Jesus, that does not cause you to weep before him over your sin, that does not purify your heart, that does not break the power of every bondage in your heart, is a false refuge of lies. It's only in Jesus Christ that you can be made righteous, but you're going to have to go and get a new heart. You can pray from now till the end of the earth and you'll be cast into hell. 
You can pray and plead for a new heart. He'll cast you into hell because he can't give you a new heart. You have to go get that new heart. You have to say, Jesus, I choose a new heart. I choose by the power of your blood to consecrate myself to you entirely, and I renounce this sin, and I cut it off by the power of your blood. It's not something we can do ourselves, but it's something we must do ourselves. It's under the influence of what is called grace. We are saved by grace. Grace, the divine influence that turns us from unrighteousness and turns us to Jesus. And then we have sweet fellowship with our Lord. Not a false sentimentality. Not a refuge of lies. But the power of sin is broken. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come and worship with us. Fellowship with us. Pray with us. Get clean with us. Leave your sin with us. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. There you'll find where we meet and when we meet. I pray today the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart. And that the cry of your heart, I must know Jesus. God bless you, my brother and my sister. I love you in Jesus. I'll talk to you soon.